Welcome to the Gate 7 International Podcast, your official English source for all things Olympiakos FC, as well as Greek Super League football. My name is Peter Thompson. This is installment number 10 of the midweek series, episode number 22 overall. I'm here with Adi Bulubasis, Lambro Sirmos, and our special guest for today, Tony Theodosis. Tony, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Tony is a contributor for Hellas Football. He writes on Panathinaikos. So we will be talking a lot about that club today and their situation as well as their history. Obviously, one of the greatest rivalries in the world of sports is between Olympiakos and Panathinaikos. So this should be a fun one. Before we get into that, we do have some news. First of all, the biggest thing, our big bomb of the day, you may have seen on social media on Wednesday, but we have announced our special guest to the world this weekend, the episode release on Monday of next week, we will be joined by none other than the absolute legend, Serios Yanakopoulos, former Olympiakos legend, won the Euros in 2004, massive, massive player. We are super excited. Let us know if you have any questions for Stelios. We are super excited for this episode, and I'm sure it's going to be really, really interesting. We're going to try to get his take on all things Olympiakos and Greek football. Our next special guest will be David Mooney, who is a Manchester City writer for The Athletic. He is also part of the Blue Moon podcast. You can follow them on Twitter, at Blue Moon Podcast. Lambro actually featured on their pod this week and talked about Olympiakos. Obviously, next week we have the fixture coming up with Manchester City, so that should be a great one. Additionally, we will be having Bob Beans on for the next weekend's episode. Stelios unfortunately pushed him back. He told us on Twitter that he understands that uh, his schedule can only be altered for big, big players, so this is worth it. But we will be still having Bob on for the episode that will be recorded Sunday, November 8th. Don't forget to visit threelosworld.com for more English articles and information about Olympiakos. Then on Wednesday, November 11th, we will be joined by a correspondent from Lambros's favorite team, the Pauk Talk podcast. We're really excited that more Greeks are beginning to make podcasts and communicate with the football community. And so we're really hoping for their growth. You can follow them on Instagram at Pauk underscore talk. And we are looking for hopefully a nice civil and respectful discussion about Olympiakos and Pauk. It should be a good one. Additionally, I want to say thank you to our sponsor, Piraeus International Incorporated. Piraeus International has been importing and exporting cargo for companies and individuals for over 40 years. They can assist you in importing olive oil, marble, or any other goodies from Greece. They can also assist in exporting, whether you have one box of household items or a full household of them. Check them out at PiraeusINTL.com or give them a call at 410-675-4696. A couple quick news bullet points before we jump into the Panathinaikos section of the pod. Masuras and Lazar Rangelovic have both renewed their contracts at Olympiakos until 2024. The front office said more contracts were coming after Semedo's announcement, and apparently they have. So that's nice to see that they've been tied down. Pauk have made another sale. They have sold their coach to Palmeiras. He had a $6 million buyout. Now, I believe they're only getting €600,000 back for him. He coached his last game, or actually I should say he is coaching his last game as we record this today in the Europa League against Grenada. Well, Peter, it's interesting. It's very interesting. I won't comment too much into it. 
but luckily Pauk, it sounded like Douglas, um, what, what, what's his last name? I forget. Douglas, the Brazilian central midfielder that they have as well, was going to be going to Palmeiras. Pauk held on to him, who, I don't know, seems like a decent player. Um, I think Misic was better, but he's got injury issues from what I read. Um, so, yeah, interesting selling their coach at the start of a season. Uh, I heard their youth coach, who actually is pretty good. They have a really good youth team, it has to be said. They produce some really good talent. It's coming up, I think. I forget his name again. It's, I'm losing names right now. Um, but he should be coming up to be the first team manager, so it'll be interesting. The youth coach has had quite a bit of success uh, at the very least, so I'm curious to see how the rest of the season goes with them. Um, but before we give uh, Lambro more time to hate on Bog, we're going to jump right into the Panathinaikos segment of this. Uh, Donnie, thank you again for joining us. And uh, we congratulated you guys already with Michael when he was here last week. But congrats to you guys for the LS Football Podcast. Episode 2, I think, just came out this past Monday. Listen to both of them. Fantastic. Keep up the good work. We wanted to get some background from you. How did you become a Panathinaikos fan? And how did you start writing for LS Football? Okay, uh, first of all, thank you guys for congratulating us with LS Footy Podcast. You guys have been a big inspiration for us as well, you know. I like that you guys have this going on over here. But uh, with Panathinaikos, I started supporting Panathinaikos, I want to say, around 10 years ago, 2009, 2010. I would have the Greek channel on, and I remember I will just watch, like, every weekend. And Panathinaikos was always on an antenna. And, you know, slowly as the years went on, I would learn more and more about the game. And I just became hooked upon Panathinaikos. It was like, you know, living in California over here, there aren't too many Greeks. So Panathinaikos was kind of my, like, connection to my roots, to my Greek roots. Uh, and then slowly I watched them in Europe. I remember specifically the game against Tottenham. We lost that one 3-1. I think it was November 2012. Mm -hmm. Opa League. But I remember when Zeka scored the equalizer, I was like, oh, my God, like, the excitement and just the pride of making a 1-1 against Tottenham, like a, a more well-known team. I was just so, like, enthusiastic, so happy. And ever since then, I've just loved this club. No, absolutely. I actually remember that game as well. I remember watching it because I was watching it with a Panathinaikos friend of mine, and he absolutely lost his mind uh, when the equalizer came. But how did you start writing for LS Football for Panathinaikos? Uh, so I've known the guys from LS Football for, I want to say, four or five years. Mm -hmm. um, they had approached me to write for them. I think it was like maybe a year or two ago and I was just really busy and I had told them, you know, you know, I'll think about it. And then during this whole pandemic time, I've had a lot more uh, time. And one of my buddies, George, had approached me. I think I, I want to say it was around March time. And he was like, hey, you know, we have a topic about Panathinaikos. And I believe it was the, the rise and fall of a giant. And they were like, you know, we would like you to write for us. So one thing led to another. I wrote it. A lot of people liked it. And ever since then, I've just been like a continuous writer, mainly focusing on like historical Panathinaikos. No, I've, I've read a couple of your articles and I, you guys are all really good writers. Uh, you know, everybody that's, that's come on and talked with us has had very good articles, very insightful. And we enjoy having each and every one of you on here. Now, before we kind of continue, just wanted to give the listeners that maybe aren't as well-versed in the history of Panathinaikos just a brief history lesson. Uh, you know, Panathinaikos, I'm sure everybody knows that listens to this. It is our oldest and largest rival. This is one of the best rivalries in Europe. Every year, it's rated as one of the top 10 sports rivalries in the world. This year, I believe it was rated number three. I could be mistaken. It's all. It's been rated everywhere, five, six, seven. 
Uh, never the best for some reason, even though I believe it's the best rivalry. Panathinaikos is officially the oldest Greek soccer team created in 1908. They do hold that title. Uh, back in the past, it was more representative of the aristocracy in Greece versus Libyakos, which was officially created in 1925, was the team of the working class, the proletariat. So back then, it was when Olympiakos and Panathinaikos would play, it was more of an expression of the working class against the aristocracy. That was how the, I guess, the politics will say, the emotions behind the politics were expressed. It was through soccer against both of those teams. And it was, it's a great rivalry. Obviously, the class difference isn't really the same now. Everybody supports whoever. Um, uh, now, there have been two also major differences traditionally with Olympiacos and Panathinaikos with regards to their teams and their talent development. Panathinaikos have always traditionally developed their talent in-house versus Olympiacos was usually the team that just got what the best players they could. We have some talent that comes through the Olympiacos academies more so nowadays, but that never used to be the case. It was usually Panathinaikos breeding their own talent, bringing them to the forefront and competing in Europe. Also, traditionally, excluding the last 10 years, admittedly, Panathinaikos was usually the European ambassador for Greece. They had the better outings in 1970s. The early 1970s, they played Ajax in a uh, UEFA Cup final. Um, they made it to a semifinals in a Champions League versus Libyakos made it to uh, only a quarterfinals in the old format. So there's a lot of history and the, the rivalry has always been a huge thing. The Derby is watched across Europe. It's one of the most watched matches of Greece in terms of global TV ratings. So uh, huge history there. Now, before we kind of get into the, the current situation with Panathinaikos, Adoni, we wanted to ask you, for the last decade, kind of with the sort of decline at Panathinaikos, do you still have the Derby the Derby of Eternal Enemies, as it's called, in the same esteem as you did before. I've heard discussed by various Libyakos fans, even some Panathinaikos fans, that the Derby isn't quite, to them, as quite as powerful of a clash as it used to be. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, personally, the last couple of years especially, I want to say, with Panathinaikos kind of lowering it, its level, the Derbies haven't felt as intense compared to, let's say, you know, 2015, 2016, when Panathinaikos was a little bit better than they are now, it was a lot more fierce. I'd say, like, this this past decade, like, uh, the 2009-2010 season, uh, when Jibril Cissé was there, that was super intense. You know, sold out Oaxaca. I think rivalries are best when, when both teams are at the highest level, and Panathinaikos hasn't, you know, really stepped up to that plate. Yeah. I, I mentioned last podcast, I went to uh, the rivalry or the game five years ago, and it was magical in the stadium, like even still. And to give some background to people, in Athens, you still see Panathinaikos tags and graffiti everywhere. And even though the quality may have been lost on the pitch, you know, the city's still divided, I would say. And in the north, you have Aik. In the center, you have Panathinaikos. And then in the south, near the port, you have Olympiakos. So it's still a thing. I, I don't know if people outside of Athens see it, but it, it's really a thing. And I would recommend people watch some of the basketball games. The basketball rivalry is intense. We have, of course, Yanakopoulos, the owner of Panathinaikos, would come to to Sef, our basketball stadium, and he would mess with the fans, or the fans would mess it with him. And it's craziness. Like 
in like a tight packed arena, you know, in basketball, like everyone's on top of you in football, at least you're a little more spaced out in the stadium. Like if you guys have never seen video clips, like flares are going off in basketball yeah. arena. It's crazy. Like, so I, I want to like reiterate, like, this is still a thing last year. I know maybe it was two years ago, like Panathinaikos fans have been kind of boycotting, I, I think was what happened at the game. I remember even like while we were playing a game, the supporters literally came on, not onto the pitch, but like came up to management on the track at Awaka. I don't know if everyone knows, but Awaka has that like sort of track thing around it. And like they walked over and then the game got delayed and there were fla- like tear gas going on. It, it was just like a mess and it didn't feel like a derby, to be honest with you. That's the unfortunate state of things. And it's something I've seen. It's a sentiment I've seen. And the the funniest thing was there was actually a really interesting tweet I saw that I thought was very fair to say. And the guy said, the reason we still take this derby as seriously as we do is because of habit. It's been a routine and a habit for our whole lives that this has been a thing. But if you were to take away that history, it, you know, it's it, it doesn't mean the same. And I just thought that was interesting. Now, before we kind of sit on that and continue to talk about the results and what is or isn't, it's important that we kind of discuss how Panathinaikos got to this point. For me, you know, growing up uh, around that time, I was actually an undergrad, I'll say, when I, well, when I believe the issues began. And for me, I saw the writing on the wall in the 2010 season, the year after Panathinaikos won the double. There was a big ownership shuffle around that time. You know, there was like this kind of triumvirate of of owners at Panathinaikos for a while. Varno Yanis, Pateras. Uh, Pateras was always like the father that, that everybody at Panathinaikos looked up to when he was the owner. He was their hero, their messiah. And then, of course, you had Ziger. That, that, I never knew much about him. That guy was a big jokester for me. And then after that season, it kind of felt like everybody started to cash out. Um, you know, Ziger was the figurehead for a couple of years. But after that season, you know, that, that 2010 season was pretty ugly. Now, Panathinaikos still came second in the league, but their Champions League campaign was far from laudable. Even with guys like Simao, uh, Gilberto Silva, Cisse, Sebastian Leto, you know, Karaguni, Katsurani were there as well. The team was the same. It was almost exactly the same team that they had the previous season, but Champions League didn't go well. One draw against Ruben Kazan, and then, of course, uh, you know, five losses. Uh, until that point, that was the worst Champions League or European outing that any Greek team had ever had. And it wasn't until the year after that that we found out that even though Banathinakos had the double season and, of course, all of that Champions League money that came in, the following season as a result, they were still heavily in debt because of the transactions that were made. I didn't know this, but the Gibril Cisse deal was like a, it was valued at like 27 million euros. It was a very expensive deal, including his contract bonuses and transfer fee associated with him. I had absolutely no idea. So for me, that was kind of the beginning. Um, Adoni, for you, when did you see like the beginning of a sort of, of downfall for Panathinaikos? Yeah, well, I'd say it's around it's around that same exact time. I'd say uh, they they went and they splashed out a bunch of cash, like you were saying. And I actually didn't know that it was twenty seven million for Jibril uh, Cisse. Actually, wow, uh, it, it, that was just one of the figures I saw thrown around. Anywhere between twenty four to twenty seven million euro total value. Yeah, so you know they had that triumvirate sort of thing going on at Panathinaikos, Pateras, uh, Valdinoyanis, Tigger, and they splashed cash and. You know, in the end, I guess things didn't work out in that campaign. 
things, uh, you know, went south. And then eventually everybody just decided to dip out of Panathinaikos. And that was, you know, the, the preemptive event that pretty much led to where we are now. And, you know, eventually with Alafuzos taking over in 2012. Yep. Now... Alafuzos, interestingly enough, now he didn't have a huge role, but even with the other guys that were there, he, it, I, and I might have this wrong, but I was of the understanding that he was like a very minority owner at the time, very small ship owner, you know, not a big head honcho like the other guys, still, of course, a rich multimillionaire, but not like billionaire status, like guys like Varnoyanis or Pateras, who were, you know, or like Bill Gates style for Greece. Now, in the, the 2011 season, that was when some fire sales were happening uh, at the club after the, some of the failures from the previous season. And then in 2012, that was when things started to, we'll say, the started to hit the fan. That's when, you know, Alafuzos ended up pulling the fans together, created uh, the Panathinaikos Alliance. I remember my friends were buying their membership cards to their Panathinaikos Alliance so they could be official members of the club, owners of the club in, in some way, shape, or form. And that season, the debt was horrible. We found out that Oaka was like unpaid. They hadn't paid some of the uh, the, the infrastructure fees or the maintenance fees for years. There was so much debt and they almost didn't have an Alpha Ethniki license. There was almost no license. Mari Nike actually paid for the Super League license for Panathinaikos in 2012. The reason being was, he said, there is no Super League without Panathinaikos Olympiakos rivalry. They couldn't afford at the time for Panathinaikos to get relegated because of the revenue. They were they were so concerned about league revenue. Then after, of course, Alafuzos gets together to consolidate ownership and try to make something of nothing. Um, I remember it was maybe a couple years later, like 2014 even, I read an article uh, an English-based article that was commenting on Panathinaikos' debt figure being rumored over 100 million euros. Now, back then, FFP wasn't really a thing. It was discussions. It hadn't been fully implemented yet. And, and the discussion was, well, guys, th there's no way Panathinaikos would qualify for FFP. 100 million is well beyond any debt threshold they'll have. In 2016, Alafuzos got in trouble with the tax authorities in Greece and they froze his assets for a while. So, of course, no more money could go into, into Panathinaikos again. Then in 2017, following that, that's when he announced he was putting nothing into the club. He put the kibosh on. I think that was kind of as like a, for me, I saw that as kind of a reaction to the fans because, of course, they were blaming everything on him. They want him to put more money, more money in it. And the poor guy, like, he's not getting anything out of it. You know, he's, he's trying to do what he can to save the club. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he's perfect. You know, it's just a difficult position. Now, things did start to improve the last couple of years. Uh, player sales, academy promotions. In 2019, the debt figure was below 50 million. And then Alafuzos approached UEFA this year in February to clear the transfer ban. And now I haven't seen the current debt figures, but it's supposed to be under 5 million, which seems like it's in the going in the right direction. So before we go into what's going on this season, Adoni, what are your thoughts on kind of what's been going on since 2012, since the Panathinaikos Alliance and Alafuzos? Is Alafuzos the demon that a lot of Panathinaikos fans make him to be during this period? Wonderful question. You know, many Panathinaikos fans, especially in Greece, do not like Alafuzos. They blame him for a lot of the situation at the club when I'd say even though, you know, I have my own opinions about him, I don't think he's, you know, really, he's not really this demon that they make him out to be. 
uh, like you were saying, I mean, the club, it was over 50 million in debt from the, the first time that I had read the figures. And pre-COVID, I had read that like it was around 5 million. Yeah, that the debt had been lowered almost that much. So he he's done his part by lowering the debt, creating the Panathinaikos Alliance. He got us back into Europe for a little bit. We won the Cup of 2014. I just say for the future going forward, I don't think he's the right president. But for this current period, he did. I feel like he's done a decent job in that respect, in that regard. Yeah, building off what you said, a lot of my friends in Greece who are Panathinaikos hate Alafuso so much and think that he's just, he bailed on the club and he said there was no money and he brought in this Thai, Thai guy who we can speak about who was supposed to take the club over. And one point I'll, I'll make as well, I don't know, this is a little controversial. Alafuso's, of course, owns Sky which is a well-known right-wing media prospect in Greece. And a lot of the younger Panathinaikos fans are not cool with that. You know, it, they, they really aren't cool with the whole ownership of Sky and like what's going on with Sky, blah, 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 blah. And so I know he got in trouble with the media group as well during the corruption scandal, I think, because he was like leaking information to Sky, blah, blah, blah. I know that's also an aspect. It's, it's kind of a mess. I, I, I'd like to hear what you have to say about like the Thai ownership group. I think a lot of us were really confused with that. And now the Thai guys, in, he's now he in was. jail because of like a Belgian club or I don't know. It was a confusing situation for us who don't follow the team every day. Yeah. I mean, the situation with the Thai, I mean, this was, I want to say a year or two ago, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And all fingers were pointing that he was going to take over and that there was going to be some to uh, some sort of consortium involved as well with Manchester City, the Manchester City group as well, and that he was going to take over Panathinaikos in Greece. He had that team in Belgium, I believe, and then he was going to take over uh, some other team in England as well. And he was showing up to the games, you know, there's pictures of him at the games, pictures of him with Alafuzos, and uh, they just, one day just disappeared. He, he just disappeared and then the newspapers were saying that he was in incredible fraudulent corruption scandals with that belgian team yeah. mechelen i believe it was i'm not sure and that was it and then ever since alafuzos hasn't really you know there's been proposals to purchase the club and he's been kind of shooing it away and that that's been that yeah, the I remember with the uh, uh, Pian Pong Sad, I think his name was. Uh, I think he was part of One MDB because I remember reading that some of the money that came from his acquisition of the Belgian team and the money that was being used or the capital that was being acquired for the Bonatinakos deal, it was like some it's some Pan Asia. It was called like the Pan Asia like communications or something, and there was money I think that came from One MDB because that's related to the fraudulent money laundering or other issues that sent him to prison in the first place. But at least this was a legitimate offer because I still remember in 2012 when it was the Saudi prince that was supposed to be buying the club. And that was, you know, there were no, there were no pictures of this guy at any games. It was literally just, I'm, I'm still think it was the whole thing was made up, but I think at this point, Alafuzo sees a light at the end of the tunnel here. And this man has dumped, you know, if not 50 million in the last few years, at least 50 million over the course of the last eight years since he's been a major figurehead there. So he sees the light at the tunnel. The, the debt's going away. Bonatinacos is still churning out players from the academy. He wants to try and make his money back, without a doubt. Now, part of a lot of the debt consolidation had to do with debt forgiveness at Oaxaca which is why Panathinaikos went back there. They were at Leofotos for a couple of seasons, but I know 
maintenance for the facility, I think, was out of reach. It was very expensive. Um, I've heard a lot of Bonnie Finacos fans very doubtful like, about his, what he was saying because the rent that they're paying now at Awaka is apparently expensive still, and cleaning up Leofotos wasn't that expensive. So a lot of people think there's more behind that. We wanted to get your thoughts on that. Uh, personally, I've I've been to Leofotos. I've seen it. You know, my wife is a Bonifinaikos fan. So we do go there when we go to Greece as well for her. And Leofotos looked rough. But the estimates of what they're paying at Oaka, they definitely could have repaired Leofotos if they wanted to. What were your thoughts on that? I mean, I'm among the camp of Bonifinaikos returning to Leofotos. Uh, Personally, uh, I feel like the best years, at least during the Alafuzos era, have come at Leofotos. I'm not sure about the exact like monetary uh, things that are going on with that, with the rent and all that. But if they could upgrade it a little bit and renovate the stadium, I'm sure that it would be a little bit better, honestly, because uh, I don't know if we're going to get into it in a little bit later, but they want to do something with Botanicos. And I feel like for the time being, Panathinaikos uh, Leofotos is the stadium for us to stay at, honestly. I mean, it's not really something that I could see us leaving from for now. Uh, maybe when things get better in the future, when we have more money down the line, I think, you know, maybe then, but I'm among the, the majority camp that we should stay there. Yeah, and for people who haven't been to Athens recently, Leofors is in a great location. It's 10 minutes from the center of Athens. It's near like a ton of great locations, close to where actually I live in Greece, in Pagarati. It's very close. It's a 10-minute walk, so... It, it, it's really a fantastic location. Now, Waka's up in northern Athens. You have to get in the car to drive there. And it's just annoying for, like, fans who are younger or live near the center. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I also wanted to say, like, it's it's also a historic stadium. I mean, I don't know if many people know, but in 1944, when the Nazis were uh, were in Greece and the, the Greeks were able to defeat them, a lot of uh, uh, resistance fighters were hiding in Leoforos. And after the Nazis were defeated, one of the first places where a Greek flag was raised was in Leoforo Stadium. So I feel like, you know, the stadium is also not only just a big part of Panathinaikos history, I feel like in Greece's history as well. And I feel like we need to preserve it, personally, from my perspective. That's a really cool story. And it reminded me, Ohi Day was yesterday. So, Kronia Pola, everyone. But <laughs> that is a very cool story. And, and it seems like there's a lot of history. You had brought up, or somebody had brought up, the extent of young players, young Greek players at Panathinaikos. And if you look at their roster, or for that matter, if you look at the Greece U21 roster, you just see how many of them there really are. And they're all playing a big part at the club right now with Buzukis and uh, Ponoguras, Alexandropoulos, Emanolidis, probably a couple other players I'm forgetting. How do you feel, Antonio, about that collection of young players, even though it's been a slightly slow start to the season for Pau in terms of results? What are your thoughts on that group of players? Do you think that they're going to be at the club for a long time? Do you think that that's encouraging in terms of results for the future? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm hoping that players like Buzukis and Puguras and Emanuelidis, I hope that they're able to stay at the club for some time because they've got a lot of talent. And in the Alafuzos era, again, I mean, our most successful season was the 13-14 season. And we had a bunch of players from our academy there. So... Personally, I'm among the camp that Panathinaikos is playing its best when we have the youngsters there. And I feel like we can also help, you know, nurture that into the national team. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that these players can stay with us. To build off of that, a lot of my Panathinaikos friends were mad this summer, were infuriated with Alafuzos for getting rid of Yorgos Donis, who 
honestly, I really enjoy watching on TV. Like he always makes great commentary. He he speaks his mind as well. And honestly, for a cash-strapped Panathinaikos team, he was doing perfectly fine with the talent that he had. And I don't. I, I think he, him and Alafuso spotted heads because he didn't give him any money. But the talent he was using is much better than what Xavi Roca and Dani Poyatos, who is a Spanish John Van Ship, just absolutely useless. And it makes no sense. Like, they brought in all these Spanish players who are not very good, to be honest. With the Anyway, that that's one thing that I noticed this season. Like, these young kids left. Like, I know Donis, uh, the player, Frisos Donis, I think, and Colovetios, blah, 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 Colovos, they weren't rated. Okay, Poyatos told them to get out the door. These guys are, like, at least usable in the Super League, and you brought in, like, these Spanish players who are the exact same level, if we're being honest. It's just shocking. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, and that, that's exactly what I'm, I'm thinking as well. Donis, for, you know, what he was given, for what he had at hand, I feel like he overachieved. And it's clear that he's, he's like a man-manager. Like, everywhere he goes, yep. he's loved. Uh, I remember when he was at Pauk, uh, he had a very good relationship with Vierinha. Uh, and I believe when was it about a season or two ago, you could see Villarinha going around, you know, talking to him, hugging him, you know, asking him for advice, whatever, when he was on a, a TV show, like analyzing. And it's just stuff like that. And I feel like that's Donis leaving is, is a big reason as to why we're struggling now currently. Yeah. And I always, I rated him as a coach. I mean, when, when we were watching the derbies, one of the reasons I still had a lot of excitement was because I knew he was a good coach. So I knew, you knew you were going to get something interesting because of that. So for me, it was definitely a shame to see him out the door. Now, going into this season, you know, they bring in the new coach. Obviously, now it was a disaster. But at the time when this overhaul was happening, you see this kind of real budget now starting to form. Now that there's not a lot of debt, you can actually go and get some players. What was your outlook from the beginning? From the very beginning, when we when we got rid of Donis, I was very upset. I was, you know, and I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the way that Donis was let go. I guess Alafuzos had a driver come and hand deliver yeah. him the letter. <laughs> yeah. Give him the, the respect to tell him to his face. Uh, so from the get-go, I was quite upset. But then, you know, they, they announced Danny Poyatos, uh, Real Madrid under-21 coach. So I'm, I'm thinking, okay, you know, Real Madrid, that's a brand-name coach right there. I mean, he doesn't have experience, but this is Greece. Yep. So... Uh, I start to get a little bit excited. You know, we start making signings like uh, Aitor. He, he used to be a Barcelona uh, player, Barcelona product. Uh, you know, we have Carlitos. We have all these other players, you know, Facundo Sanchez. So I started thinking, you know, perhaps we're going to maybe make a push for a top three, you know, get back into Europe. And in the end, I mean, clearly it didn't work. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and then here we are now. Yeah. Uh, and before we continue, uh, the Bauk Grenada game just ended 0-0. That is positive result for me. Most of us were expecting a thrashing. If we had to pick between Ike or Bach, who was going to actually possibly get a result, I think most of us would have looked at Ike. But Bach did it. Uh, they they got the uh, zero zero result. This is great for the coefficient. That means we have some kind of movement. Whereas Denmark lost, Magellan lost in the Champions League game they had. So this is good upward movement for the coefficient for us. I have some bad news, though. Daniel Malen, young Dutch star, scored in the 93rd minute for PSV Eindhoven, and they won against Ammonia in the 92nd or 93rd minute. So that's not ideal for them getting out of the group. But, yeah, a draw is a good result away in Spain. What a game for uh, 
Ferreira to end his tenure at Pauk. Well, don't forget, Ammonia lost, which means Cyprus doesn't get any more coefficient points. So we will still take true, that. True, so true. them not getting coefficient points because we're competing with them for that 15th spot. Uh, and we'll, you know, in future episodes, we'll go more into when we have more time. Of course, there's still a lot on our plate here on the coefficient, but that's huge. It's important for that. Now, as the, the let's say the summer training or what little summer <laughs> training window that we had was going on, um, what were you thinking when you were watching those Bonathinaikos friendlies? Because we watched them <laughs> and we were a little concerned. We saw kind of what he was trying to do. But the, the product didn't quite look like it was going to be anything impressive on the field. What were your thoughts during that process? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm watching the games and it's clear. You know, the first game comes by and I'm thinking, uh, you know, there's no cohesion with the team. They're, they're not playing very connected compared to the, the season before. Players look lost out there. And I start thinking, okay, you know, this is preseason, whatever. You know, second game comes by. They're still kind of struggling a little bit third game. And I was ignoring the red flags. You know, I had uh, I had some Panathinaikos fans telling me that, you know, I don't think Poyatos is going to last long. And I started thinking, ah, you know, let's let's wait for a couple games to go in. And, you know, nothing changed going into the season. And, yep. you know, here we are again. Yeah, it, it was definitely unfortunate. Um, you hate to see such, such a historic club experience that. But what do you see... And I'll, I'll ask you the same question I asked uh, Michael Vicini when we were talking about Larissa. Boloni comes in. Do you think the pieces are there for him to form something so that he can salvage the season? Uh, what are your What's your outlook now with Boloni? Do you think there's hope? Do you think that this guy can at least make something for the end of the season? Or do you think there's no hope at all? Um, you know, with Boloni, I think there's slight bit of hope uh, that will maybe be able to salvage something. I'm thinking at best, if I'm being honest with you guys, top six will finish. Uh, I'm liking the 4-4-2 that he went with when we played um, Volos last weekend. Right. But, uh, you know, he switched up to 4-2-3-1 and things got a little chippy. He's going to experiment mm -hmm. again this weekend. But overall, his thing that I like about him being a coach is that he's good with their mentality, at least, because he's saying that mm -hmm. the, the players were really down in the dumps. And we're going to kind of need a man manager, which is what Donis was. So I don't know, maybe he'll, he'll need the next summer window to kind of bring in the players he wants because it's clear that he doesn't like some of the players on the squad. I mean, I, I've read a rumor that Carlitos may be even excluded, which I don't agree with. Uh, he definitely should be starting, but we'll see. Yeah, one weird thing when I was watching those friendlies and the strange practice facility and then in Galicia, which had the weird cliff, you know, it's such a strange yeah. stadium. I didn't even know that was there. Like I've been to the Stavros Niarko Center, which is like right in that neighborhood, but like never seen that cliff, like just out of nowhere. But anyway, the, the one thing that was strange was our sources that we read said Makeda was off to Red Star Belgrade or somewhere in Saudi Arabia, maybe. Mm -hmm. And Carlitos was going to be the striker. And then Makeda got this, like, big three-year, four-year contract and stayed. And we were like, well, what happens with Carlitos? Because Boyatos from this typical Spanish 4-3-3. Like, it made no sense. And then Carlitos was on the wing. Like, it makes no sense. So, I mean, the 4-4-2 seems like a much better formation if you're just looking at personnel. Yeah, I mean, it, that's my exact point. I mean, the whole summer we were told that Makeda is going to be sold, most likely to Red Star Belgrade. Carlitos was going to be our guy. We were going to go 4-3-3. You know, we were going to have Aitor on the wing. We were going to have maybe Giovanni's on the left. Uh, and out of the blue, Chavi Roca and, and Alafuzos decide, hey, we're going to extend Makeda. 
Poyatos is stuck with two strikers. He's going to play Carlitos on the left wing. And I personally was among the camp that was saying that I think this is what caused a lot of the issues as well. It was so unbalanced. I mean, we had two players that like to play centrally, both kind of, you know, mm -hmm. conflicting on that side. And it just made everything thrown off balance. That's why I like this 4-4-2, because we're able to have the both players on that side have our wings, you know. But, oh, my gosh, that that's definitely, you know, one of the bigger reasons, the bigger issues, you know, it's clear that the club didn't have a plan this summer and they were just being contradictory in their decisions. But there's a silver lining right now with the result, uh, the previous, this previous result, because even though I'll say the result wasn't as, or people didn't like the result as much as they would have, right. If it were a win, but there were some good signs there. At least for me, there, there was a little bit more cohesion than I had seen in the previous five games you know, and for me, I know you guys discussed on, on uh, your second episode about the emotion in the locker room, and I was in a complete agreement. Uh, for me as a player, and I remember my coaches, with tough games like that, so that emotion, when it's collective, is, is good. Now, when the emotion is to the point where it's detrimental and it's, and it's bringing the rest of the team down, that's when it's bad. But this was like an anger that sounded more like to me the way it was described as something that was more motivating. You know, I've been in locker room situations where people got mad, slammed lockers, you know, in both high school, uh, club level, both of those. Uh, and I've seen times where it's been like, you know, just somebody pouting because he didn't get playing time or somebody pouting for another reason. Then there's people smashing locker rooms because you know you deserved a better result and you should have played better and you expect better and everyone's in agreement. And that's more cohesive. So for now, I'm more optimistic about that. I think that's a good thing. And I'm hoping that this is kind of like what Olibiakos experienced when Marinaki first bought the club and Lenin took over. Disaster for the first few games of our campaign and our European season when we lost to Maccabi Tel Aviv and got kicked out of both Champions League and Europa League. That was a disaster. And then we brought in Ernesto Valverde. And then look at what brought us Martins. You know, two seasons ago, we had the Albanian manager, Beznekazi. Utter disaster. And then we end up, you know, now that was a whole season of misery. We flopped through managers. We end up bringing in Bento, who looks like he has a clue. And then he just dips and completely leaves, of course, for a better offer. Uh, but then we get Martins. So I think, you know, I'm hoping that Bologna is that, kind of like that Valverde for you guys, and that, you know, he kind of writes the ship and gives you guys a good product going forward. Yeah, I mean, that's what that's exactly what I'm hoping for as well. I feel like he's kind of that, you know, that calming factor. He's he's basically the polar opposite of what uh, Boyatos was, who's young and experienced mm -hmm. versus Bologna. You know, he's been around the block. He's a lot older. He has the respect of the players. He kind of has a clue of what he's doing. So, if anything, I, I'm just hoping he can kind of, you know, elevate this team and I guess prepare us maybe for next season because I don't know. I honestly kind of have the feeling of this, this season's a wash. I don't think we're getting it to top five. So I didn't know about this locker room smash until I listened to your guys' podcast and I was looking into it. And so it sounded like it was Corpelis and Diudis, which makes a lot of sense, like two guys who know what Panathinaikos is. And one thing that I thought about is, like, if this was happening at Olympiakos, the first person through the door is Marinakis. Like, you don't have that at Panathinaikos right now. Like, you don't have that ownership who, like, cares enough to go in and say, like, I'm not paying you. I remember after Hapwell Beersheba came, <laughs> yeah. Marinakis said, like, get a plane home. You're not considered Olympiakos. Good luck. Like, 
No one is doing that at Panathinaikos. They're collecting a salary. They go home to Glifada, Kifisia, wherever they live. And life is good, you know? Like, Alafuso should go down there and say, I'm, I'm paying you guys money. What, what am I watching? Volos at home? Is this a joke? Like, like he should be down there. It shouldn't be the the players, you know? Like, that, that that's one thing I noticed. Like, right away, my next would have killed someone. I honestly think if this happened at Olympiacos. <laughs> I mean, you're you're absolutely right, and that's the thing. I, as a Panathinaikos fan, obviously, you know, Olympiacos is the rival team, but the one thing I can say is I respect Marinakis because he's a boss. Like he'll he'll lay it down. He'll go into the locker room. He reminds me of Melisanidis as well. He'll go into the locker yep. room. He'll let them know, you know, hey, you, this isn't Olympiacos level. This is an Ike level. Whatever it is, at Panathinaikos, what do we, you know? What do we have? It's just the two players, which I'm glad that they had the bust up, you know, yelling at the other players, but. We kind of need that leadership from the top, and we don't have it. There's no clear foundation or basis. Yeah, and actually, uh, Marinakis, he fined the team a million euros combined after that bear shave a loss. So uh, not only did he not pay them, but he also fined them, which I thought was hysterical. But, yeah, I mean, we honestly, as as Greek fans, of course, we are we're hoping for the best because – Balkan Ike, let's be honest, they haven't picked up the mantle in Europe. There is no second Greek team in Europe. It was always Olympiakos and Panathinaikos pushing. You know, uh, again, before the last 10 years, Panathinaikos was usually a little bit more successful. Olympiakos having some success here and there, quarterfinal stages here and there. But, you know, now it's, you know, Olympiakos trying to push where they can in a different, a completely different landscape. Billionaire owners everywhere, teams with market caps of over 1 billion British pounds. And, Ike and Balk haven't really stepped up to the plate. You know, we need that healthy Panathinaikos that has that historical experience and that experience competing at the highest level in Europe. I agree so much with that, Adi. And, you know, like people comment about me making comments about Pauk, but Pauk will never be the level of Olympiakos or Panathinaikos. They'll never dream of reaching our clubs. That's just a fact. They have what? Pauk has two championships, three championships. They have like as many championships as Larissa and Aris combined. Like that, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. It, it's Olympiakos and it's Panathinaikos, and that's how it should be. And we see that in Europe continuously. They don't have the pedigree. They don't have the history, and it they flop continuously. Like it, it's 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 difficult to say that to other fans, but like Panathinaikos has that history, and they do it in Europe, while other Greek teams don't. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Right now, I, I was talking to my, my friend George on the Elas Footy podcast, and I, I was telling him, you know, right now it's just Olympiacos holding the mantle right now for the Greek teams in Europe. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I'll give them, you know, their respect. I mean, they kind of put up a fight against Leicester as an example, but I mean, Pauk, mm -hmm. I, I believe, I could be wrong about this. I don't think Pauk has ever even made the, uh, the Champions League group stage. Nope. Nope. <laughs> You know, it, it's just over the years. I mean, Panathinaikos has, has beaten teams like Juventus. You know, they've beaten yep. Barcelona 1-0, Leoforos, uh, Ajax, the final 71. I mean, if you go into the 1996 semifinals, I mean, mm -hmm. Olympiacos has had its big wins. It had the big win last week against Marseille. Yep. I mean, it was just these two teams historically. And I mean, I feel like Panathinaikos needs to really step it up and get back into Europe so we can help Greece because Pauk is definitely not a team that we can rely on. I feel like Ike maybe, but Pauk is, I, I'm with Lambro on this. Yeah, we're definitely in agreement. And now that you're bringing up Europe, we might as well jump into those games. We'll start with the Libyacos versus Porto game. That game was kind of crushing for a lot of us. Uh, there was a lot of depression 
across social media from Ribiacos fans. And that caused us to do a little bit of an early release for our special guest, or our mystery guest, I should say, to try and cheer everybody up. But going through the numbers and going through the match report, we did pull a match report for this. You know, there's both good and bad takeaways from this game. Namely, Olympiacos did dominate this game. I know some of the possession looked ugly in the first half, but we dominated this game in terms of possession. The general possession was 56 to 44 in our favor. First half was 53% with uh, 59% for Olympiacos in the second half. But in that second half, that period in between the 60th and 75th minute, 75% possession for Olympiacos against Porto. That has never happened for Olympiacos in a European game before, where we had that level of possession. I'd like to ask everyone, and I'd like to also ask Jan van Schip, do you know who came on right before that spell of high possession for Olympiacos? Does anyone know what player that might have been? I Jan think his van name Schip? with uh, Hortunis. Oh yeah, that's, that's right. It was Costas Fortunis <laughs> who came on and made an instant impact for Olympiacos, did a lot of really good things for that little bit of time, and then eventually... Porto made some changes and got their momentum back. But yeah, I mean, I watched the game, obviously, and watching through the first half and then watching that little bit in the second half as well, it really seemed like Olympiacos were hanging with this team. It seemed like they could beat Porto potentially if they played them again. Obviously, it was 1-0 for a lot of the game until that heartbreaking Sergio Oliveira, especially having a former Pauk player score against us late in the game. Yeah. Really unfortunate. And then Hassan <laughs> misses a chance that was uh, could have easily uh, got us a goal. But yeah, it's a game that I think the, we played reasonably well. You know, it could have been a lot worse. I've seen much worse 2-0 defeats where the team just looks like they flopped and didn't, didn't go at all. And we all know how good this Porto team are. You know, I'm really upset about the result and I was in a bad mood after the game all day. But there are some good things to take from this for sure. Yeah, and Peter, before I comment on the game, I want to say something about Sergio Oliveira and Andre Villarinha, who is supporting him on social media. Sergio Oliveira is a nothing player, and he was a Pauk reject. I don't know how he's playing in this Porto team, but he's a nothing. And him talking to our players and posting on social media, someone's going to give him a tackle strong, and I hope it's Andreas Bujalakis or something, because he's a joke. Moving on. Yes disappointed with this game so much and you bringing up Sergio Oliveira made me very mad because he was talking about during the game but just not scoring chances like how many times are we going to say this this season first half of games we don't do anything like how frustrating is this and we we put up a question on our socials the morning after asking people like what do you want us to talk about guys and Everyone said it, like, where are the goals this season? Like, what are we doing? Like, what is El Arabi doing? Where's the wing play? Like, we have been saying this all season. Like, it is frustrating. Like, what is happening in Greece is translating to what is happening in Europe. Like, and Hassan is not the answer. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up Hassan. Nobody was adding me. Nobody was adding me or making fun of me. Not this week. You're oh, still no, going to no, be wearing no. that kit when jersey. it gets here. I'm still, still getting have the kit, to wear it. <laughs> all I'm saying, he's on there. He gets the highest, most threatening opportunity of the game. It registered a 0.3 expected goal differential. It was our best opportunity, an opportunity in which one in three shots go in. And he gets this opportunity. He's in pretty good position. Sure, it's a little bit out on the right. But all he had to do was get a little bit of air on the shot. A little bit of air on the shot, it goes just over the keeper. What does he do? Hits it with his instep. 
worm burner right to the keeper. Disgusting. You're a professional forward, a professional striker, a professional striker that we paid almost 2 million euro for. You should at least be able to put some air on that shot. But I digress because I don't want to continue to, to rag on Hassan. We do have some more important things to, to talk about in terms of what went right and wrong with the game. I, I just want to make a comment, as mad as we are about Hassan. Yusuf Al-Arabi was giving me flashbacks of Brownie Day in Europe. Like, what is Ugh. he doing with the ball under his feet for, like, 10 years? He brings the ball down, and it's, like, stuck under there. Yeah. Like, I remember Brownie Day during Europe would take him, like, 20 years to get a shot off. Like, Yusuf Al-Arabi needs to realize that he's playing in Europe, and he's not playing against Volos. He needs to get the ball out of his feet and shoot the ball. Like, how many chances did he waste? And... It's getting frustrating now. Like, there needs to be questions asked about him. Like, how long are we going on in the season with him wasting chances after chance? Like, it's getting ugly. Like, I'm worried about it. Yeah, it, it definitely is ugly. And he was great. He looked great in qualifiers coming into this. You know, we thought that his goal-scoring drought was over and that he was back. Now it's kind of like, again, you know, where is he? What is he doing? He's still doing well, all things considered, you know, by his metrics. But it's just frustrating in, in huge games like this when we get a huge goose egg out of him. Um, now, we're going to touch more on the actual player metrics in a second. But uh, going back to the overarching data that we're looking at here, uh, we discussed the possession already. Now, Olympiacos's pass accuracy compared to Marseille, we were much crisper in possession. It did drop. Uh 86% last time. It did drop a little bit. I was surprised it was as high as 83%. I thought our pass accuracy was going to be in the 70s, especially from the first half display. We definitely picked it up in the second half. I know it was a little slick, but things did improve. Now, the, the disturbing thing for me, and this relates to the fact that we are a second-half team. We're kind of slow in the first half. Porto won the majority of duels in the first half. I mean, early on in like the first 20, 25 minutes, they won 70% of all duels, offensive, defensive, you name it, loose ball. They won 70% of all duels. That's not good. That means anytime they were contesting the ball, they were winning. Or anytime we were contesting, we couldn't win it. You know what I mean? It's, it's not a good look. Now, gradually, as the game wore on in the first half, that duel win percentage dropped down to 58%. But by that time, they had already scored the first goal. We had had that mistake by Pujalakis that ended with them one nothing. It's too late for us to get going. And this is a very troubling thing, starting these games so slow and copping goals like this. Now, on the bright side, Olympiacos did have a better attack and more voluminous attack than Porto did. We were averaging more attacks per minute, almost double from the 10th minute to the 80th minute. So for 70 minutes of this game, we were the dominant offensive figure. And that's good. Olympiacos very rarely in our history has ever been able to play its type of ball in Europe. Even back in the Dusan Bajevic days, even with Ernesto Valverde, which we did under him, and Michel, you know, there we had our moments, but usually we play more defensive. We don't boss the game around against these larger teams. Um, Valverde tried to do it, but as you all might remember, that high press used to kill us. I still get nightmares of that Metalist game, second leg, when game was going so well. We had the 1-0 the advantage, and then 75 minutes in, we caught two goals because everybody is dog-tired. So this 
this is really good to see that Olympiacos is playing its brand of football and bossing larger clubs around in Europe. So this is a positive thing to see. Now, last week we brought up a very important metric about pressing intensity. It's called PPDA, passes per defensive action. This measures every team's pressing ability. And once again, Olympiacos was doing its thing with the press, easing high press, easing high press. Now, in the beginning of the game, when I didn't think we were actually pressing well and Porto was, we were pressing much higher. 7.1 passes per defensive action compared to Porto's 17.7. A lot of people were talking about how Porto was pressing us really high. They really were not. We were just making a lot of stupid mistakes. Positionally, they were getting forward, but they weren't applying a lot of pressure. We were just making a lot of stupid mistakes. 16th to 30th minute, Olympiacos 10.9 passes per defensive action versus Porto's 24 passes per defensive action. Again, Olympiacos was stepping, had the press higher. Now, from the 30th minute to halftime, 26.7 passes per defensive action for Olympiacos, 14 for Porto. And we kind of saw how the end of that first half went. Not so good. But then in the second half, we had 5.4, 6.6 in terms of the rest of the game. And Porto... Although they were pressing higher in the second half, 5.9 in the first 15 minutes and 9.8 in the last 15, 21 in the middle, in that middle third, where we said we had 75% of the possession. We were at uh, 5.4 at that time. So this is really good for us. I mean, we were bossing Porto around, dominating, you know, until, of course, the very end in that unfortunate giveaway. We play this game nine times out of ten. I think we win this game based on what actually happened. Maybe no bad giveaways. Team stays, you know, structurally sound. I think we win this game more times than we don't. And think about it. That's without Usain Uba, our rock at the back, and Mari Kamara, one of our most important pieces on the team. Yeah, I agree with you, Adi. I mean, I don't know about nine out of ten, but I certainly think – for large stretches of that game, we were the better team. And obviously the first goal, incredibly unfortunate from Buharlakis to give it away. The midfield as a whole, not as good as they were. We gushed about them against Marseille, not as good uh, against Porto. And then there was so many opportunities, not necessarily chances or shots on target as much, but just like really encouraging bouts of possessing the ball. And then as you said, sometimes it was El Arabi taking too much time and when he should have just shot it first time there was that one first time volley from Lazar that actually got on target pretty much I think the only thing Lazar did all game that was productive uh that was actually a really solid look but they're close but at the end of the day we can't really commend the team that much when the goals just aren't there for me I mean it's you could argue that it's a thing of just like being unlucky uh but I got to see it eventually. We got to be getting the goals against these teams because we can get away with not being super clinical right away against Atromitos and, and then still getting some goals on the board. But against Porto, we're going to really have to be putting shots on target consistently and converting. Yeah, them. and I feel like whenever people are like, oh, we were unlucky, you know, who made that argument a lot? It was Danny Poyatos. I remember in, <laughs> in the preseason <laughs> yeah. games, he would always say like, oh, we, the goals are coming. We had the chances. It, there's a problem at Olympiacos right now, and goals are not there. Have we scored a goal in the first half, like of any game this season? 
No. Does anyone worried about that? I yes. am. You know, <laughs> you know what's worrying about that? Lazar Angelovic has been playing consistently for the start of the season. He's not good. I got bad news. I'm breaking it. He's not very good. He's not Olympiacos Champions League level. Bruma, let's hope we see something from him. And you know who's sitting on that bench ready to go is Mario Vrusai. I hope he's ready to go because Rangelovic is not going to cut it as a starter in Champions League football. I'm sorry, everyone. He needs to go on loan for me. I don't think he's good enough. I'm sorry. Like, we don't have a winger yet. We don't have a quality winger. Like, it's shocking. You know, it's funny you should mention that because in my football manager, Olympiacos save, one of the first things I did was send him on loan. But I digress. Um, I agree with you. And I also think that this is sort of unrelated. And I don't want to, you know, be Olympiacos fan podcast too much because this is the midweek series. But this weekend against Pollen, this is a team where I want to see a lot of rotation. Martins made some changes in the second half of this game, gave a, gave a couple players their debuts, gave Vinagre his first real extended debut after playing like two minutes against Marseille, brought Bruma on, brought Pepe on. These are big players that we've been really excited about bringing in. These are players that I think could be a big part of the team soon, but you could just tell with Bruma, especially I think with Vinagre, the talent is there. The ability might be there. But these guys are not ready to just be thrown into Europe yet. They need to get some fitness and they need to get shaped in with the team. And that happens in Greece. It doesn't happen in Europe. Obviously, with the circumstances and the lack of a preseason, it was hard to get them time. But I think those changes could have potentially been a bit more impactful if they had played a little bit more. We'll need to see them this weekend against Apollon. That's for sure. And you saw, I mean, Bruma's got speed. So I'm excited to see when, contextually when he finally gets on the same page with everybody on the team, how he does for us. With Lazar, we know what he's good at. He's not really an out-and-out hold-up winger, but he's really good. When you, if you can get the ball to his feet in stride, he is dangerous. He can take those defenders on. It's just, you know, when he isn't able to get by those defenders, I mean, Zaidu was – I mean, he couldn't get by him. Zaidu had him shut down. He completely. had a masterclass performance. Zaidu I mean, did. there was nothing Lazar could do. But Lazar also makes a lot of stupid decisions. You know, sometimes I think when he attempts to do a move or do something to get by a defender, I think he just thinks about what move do I want to try this time and do it. I don't think he actually watches the positioning of the defender. Because did you notice when Zaidu – at one point, Zaidu was like almost 10 yards away from him. And Lazar just tries to kick the ball past him and burn him with his speed. If you're yeah, going to try that, you work. better be sure the guy's weight is on his front foot. That way you have the step, you get a step in hand, and your momentum carries you forward. Don't try that when he's sitting on the back foot ready to pivot and turn, especially when he's 10 meters away. That's just a stupid decision. Antonio, I know you're not an Olympiacos fan, but did you watch this game? And if so, what are your thoughts on the performance from Olympiacos? I wasn't able to watch the game, but I saw the extended highlights. And honestly, I mean, I saw some panic on, on Twitter from some Olympiacos fans and just from some of my friends as well. I honestly think that Olympiacos will be able to uh, get second in this group because right now uh, Olympiacos is second, right? Or are they tied with second with Porto? Technically, yeah. Technically, mm -hmm. right? I, I mean, I think they can because you guys were down. It was Ba as the center back, and then there's a midfielder mm -hmm. down as well, correct? Kamara. Oh, Kamara. Okay, so... I mean, I think another win against Marseille is on the table. Um, I think 
honestly, that Olympiacos could beat Porto. I mean, the, the Bukalaki's mistake kind of, yeah. uh, you know, it put a damper on the team, I feel like, early on. I, I think it's possible this Olympiacos side can finish second. This Olympiacos side is actually very good, and I have a lot of respect for it. Uh, and like we were saying earlier, they're the mantle for Greece right now in, in, the, in Europe and in Champions League. So... I think there's a, there was positivity to take from this. And I know a lot of people were doom and gloom. Uh, and I, w- I was really upset at first. But then when I looked through the match report and I was kind of going through everything, a lot of positive takeaways. I do think we can compete. And I definitely think we can take Porto. I think people keep forgetting that we weren't expecting to take points from this game in Porto. When we were talking about kind of the pre-group stage analysis – we knew a couple of things. One, it was just as easy for us to get fourth as second. There was no easy game here. Marseille, Porto. But they're at least sort of in our caliber. Now, we knew that we could compete with Marseille. Were we happy that we took the points in France? Or sorry, were we happy that we took the points in the first game? Yes. But when we knew we were traveling to Portugal, we knew it probably wasn't likely that we would, we would win, especially when we found out they had fans. So that was already an unlikely scenario. Now, Manchester City, odds are we take no points either leg. But Marseille, again, opportunity there. And Porto home, we can take points there. So there's a there's a decent outlook here. Now, moving moving on to the defense, first and foremost, we have a CL caliber defense. Even when they don't play well, they're solid. I mean, nobody's really cutting holes through this defense at all. Yeah, but- I, I was just going to say, Papa Busise is a starting defender for any team in the Super League. And yeah. He was class. He hasn't played any games all season. He comes in, played a fantastic game. Ruben Semedo played great. But I, I, I see your point about don't be upset. We weren't supposed to get points from this game. But Porto is going to be so good in a few months. Like They're going to have Felipe Anderson in the team, Marco Grujic in the team. They're going to be so much better. Sergio Oliveira is terrible player is going to be gone real quick because Mark, Marco Grujic is taking his spot, you know? So I, I thought this was an opportunity, and it's so Olympiacos to drop this opportunity six points. We would have been up there, and we would have been in such good position to go to these games in Manchester City yeah. and say, who cares? Like, who cares? Um, now it just feels like we're, we're going to Manchester next week, and we're going to eat some goals, and we're Where's the hope for a second? You know, it's going to be tough. Like, we have to go to France, and then we got to play a fully strengthened Porto side. So, like, I can see where everyone is so down. Like, what are we going to do here? It's tough. Um, We're full strength, too, though. Yeah, we're not at full strength, too. But Felipe Anderson and Marco Grujic are top money. Felipe Anderson moved to West Ham for, like, 40 million euros, like, two years ago. Like... Like, Felipe Anderson ain't walking through Olympiacos' doors. I'm sorry. Like, Bruno yeah. may be a very good player, but will never be uh, Felipe Anderson. And, okay, like, I don't want to freak out about this, but it's just so disappointing because I felt like this was an opportunity that Olympiacos hasn't had in five, six years we talked about. And if Yusuf Al-Rabi was maybe Kostas Mitroglu instead of himself, he scores those goals maybe six years ago like Mitroglu did. And we go through. So it's just, it feels like an opportunity dropped. I think that was the thing with Olympiacos fans. Is that's where the sadness comes from. You know, it's just like, this was our chance. Like, and this could, it could be gone now. And 
I understand that from our fans completely. And I'm kind of like, as you guys can probably can tell, I'm pretty disappointed. Yes. I still am. Yeah. Um, of course. But I mean, Felipe Anderson and Grealish are going to be huge pieces for them. But I see it more as tipping the scale. You know, we get Madi back, which is a huge plus for us so i see it tipping more of the scales back because in some of the analytics we teased on twitter valbuena and fortunis themselves had more key passes than the entire porto team combined we had more creativity than they did so now grujic and felipe anderson do they bring more yes that probably helps level the playing field in that respect our defense stepped up holebas we thought this whole campaign was going to be our weak point and people are going to try and exploit him. And they did. Everybody has. But now two games in a row, Holebas has had pretty solid defensive performances. I mean, I'm looking at the metrics right now with everybody. And Holebas, I mean, again, defensive duels. Literally, the only defensive duels he's lost is when he's either committing a foul or they do a back pass. For me, that's not a loss. That's 100% for Fortunis there. Five interceptions, seven recoveries. Won every loose ball, every aerial ball. Fantastic. Rafinha, again, also. Now, the only thing I will say for Holebas is I wish we would get more crosses out of him. But another thing that I like to see is we talked about how Porto, very dangerous going down the wings, and they average almost 17 crosses a game. We limited them to six of nine successful crosses for the whole game. That is huge. We limited their core tactic. That is a really good sign. And that is a fantastic sign. And as long as Rafinha and Holebas are able to continue to play as, as well defensively, we know our center backs are going to continue to do it. They're the most consistent piece of this defense. And seeing Cissé come off cold like that, amazing performance, nine interceptions, 15 recoveries, three clearances, won all of his defensive duels. Again, the only ones he lost were back passes, loose ball duels. Uh, one slide, and then now the one thing was for some reason, Cissé is pretty bad in the air. He won three for 10 aerial duels. I don't understand when he's the tallest guy on the field how he loses those, but whatever. I'm, I'm not super concerned. The duels he lost were in midfield and in corners in the opposing third. Not too concerned about that. I just find it hilarious. But the defense is good, and the defense has continued to show that it can defend even without Simikas and Omar against really good players. Yeah, I mean, once again, it's obviously Oleva surprised us all against Marseille. And I think over the weekend, I said, get him out there again, but be prepared to sub him off early if he's not having the same game. And he went and had a solid, he did get subbed off, but he went and had a solid game, especially defensively, was a little bit less involved in attack, but was very good defensively. And Cissé, to your point, has really not played very much football for us. I think he did feature for Senegal, to be fair, over the break, but... He came in and overall was solid. I mean, you mentioned, yeah, the aerial duel is not great. And he also uh, had a decent look at goal on a <laughs> header, I think, late in the game that he blew way over the bar, unfortunately. We've seen better from him at the top. But overall, as much as you can expect from a guy who hasn't been in the team much, played great. And it just reminds people, this is our third string player. Ba is better than this guy. And it certainly helps to be able to have Cissé who can just slot right in there when we need him. Yeah, guys, the, the defense is really good defensively. But one thing that just leaves something to be desired is going forward. These guys are not the same as Chimikas or Omar, it seems. And yes. maybe Rafinha technically is better, but he physically cannot run and he's not fast enough. And I feel like Omar was so good at that. And I know... I'm starting to get really worried, and Olympiacos fans are starting to get worried. 
we don't have it down the wings anymore. We don't have great fast wingbacks who make up for the poor dribbling, poor decision-making of our wingers. And we're not scoring goals because of that. To me, I think this is the biggest problem. The wingbacks are the biggest problem. And okay, like they're not doing poorly defensively, but they shouldn't. They're experienced players. They know their positioning well. They know what to do. They know how to make tackles. They've seen all the tricks. They've seen it all. But going forward, Rafinha, I expected better. You know, I really did expect the interplay to be better from him. And Jolebas is never going to be that wing back who's flying up the field at 36 years old. And I'm worried. Ruben Vinagre, is he going to do it? Is his performance, okay, I know it was his debut in Europe. Is he going to do it? Is he going to be able to do it? in three weeks when we go up against Manchester City again, or we go up against them next week, I'm sorry, but at home again, like, it just seems like our transfer policy is coming back to bite us right now. And I feel like I'm the doom and gloom guy because I'm the typical Greek fan. We lose the first game. Oli Belko's fan. I read the newspaper. I'm like, we're screwed, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, I, I, I am like that. I'm sorry, guys. Um, But yeah, I'm just, God, the fullbacks, it's just so... It's it's annoying to me because we had such great fullbacks last season and like I don't know I'm I'm disappointed with them so far going forward. Well, I share your annoyance, Lambro. I am a bit upset about the way the transfer window went, especially after watching how Zaidu played against us. I think he was very good overall. Would have been amazing to have him on the team, especially if it was not a player that we got on loan. Basically, getting Vinagre on loan means we're going to have to do this whole thing again next summer, and who knows what next summer is going to be like. I know Vinagre did not play great. I'm not super concerned with him playing badly. I don't have the analytics on him right in front of me, but I'm not super concerned with it. As we talked about, this is his first time playing. It's going to take him some time to get worked in. The wingers I am also concerned about, hopefully Bruma can come in. It's just going to take time. I'm not going to make any conclusion either way just yet, but I am a little bit more optimistic that they'll eventually figure things out. Of course, it might not be soon enough for next week's game against Manchester City, but there is a little bit of time off between the next Champions League fixture, so that's at least encouraging. I want to make a quick counterpoint because I think we were used to getting most of those crosses and most of that offensive activity out of our wingbacks in the past. But if we compare year over year, uh, current season so far compared to last season, even though our wingbacks are averaging less crosses than Tsimikas and Omar were, we are performing, I should say, more crosses per game. We're averaging almost 22 crosses per game this season, whereas last year we were about 17. So I don't see it as an issue more because if we're still getting the same quantity, if we're still – if the output is better – than what it was previously, I don't see an issue with having wingbacks that aren't as active. What I see is the issue is that our finishing rate from those crosses or the number of crosses we're connecting is worse. We just seem to not be able to finish the product or to to get the goal behind net like we did last year. This season, in terms of the shots we're getting, or I should say people getting on shots, the percentage is way lower. We were at least getting heads on shots last season almost 50% of the time. It was actually incredible. But this season, we're hardly getting heads on them. And we're, we're not getting people to get stuff on target. So is it more of an issue of the wingbacks not being as involved as they were last year while the product is still the same, or the end product, I should say, or the fact that we don't have anybody 
this season that's been able to take advantage of that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And we did talk about Adarabi a little bit and how he's kind of been a bit lackluster. I mean, he's never been a superb aerial threat anyways. Uh, he's over 30 years old, so it's not like he's jumping up there super high to get those, those crosses. Olympiacos dominated the attack of this game for a sizable portion of it. I think the defense is doing fine. I think one thing for me is that the midfield, uh, the midfield pairing of Jan and Vila and Buharakis looked a lot worse. I think obviously Buharakis gave away that one goal. He had a performance that was pretty hard to replicate against Marseille. So it's no surprise that he didn't play that well. I mean, that would be amazing if, if we got that out of him two matches in a row. Jan and Vila, I think, was also a lot more one-dimensional, didn't do as much going forward. Uh, I'm not totally sure what the analytics have to say on that, but I wasn't as amazed by him. I think overall the midfield, two of our best players last week, uh, they looked a lot worse against Porto. I think Invila was cl at least closer. I mean, he was on the ball a lot. He still was on the ball almost 70 times. Two interceptions, seven recoveries. One, pretty much most of his defensive duels backtracking, applied a lot of pressure going forward. His long balls weren't really downfield. They were more switches to the end lines, some of them down to the corner flags. So I still think he had an okay performance, but Bukalakis just in, in general was bad. I mean, 11 losses, yeah. uh, four, only, I'll say three of the losses he had were pretty forgivable. Other than that, four of them were in our half, and they all, a lot of them almost led to opportunities on goal. He wasn't nearly as involved. I mean, we see Bukalakis making uh, attempting sometimes 75 to 90 passes a game he barely attempted 40 passes this game he was barely involved and i think that was a confidence thing i think when he made that mistake i think it i think it affected him so the midfield unfortunately wasn't as solid as it was against marseille and you could even say that the result that we got is a result of the the worst midfield performance that we had yeah, I think it's definitely a big part of it. And I totally agree with you. As soon as he conceded that goal, I'm obviously thinking, well, that sucks. We just conceded a goal. But I'm also thinking, Buhalakis, we've talked about how harshly the fans treat him. And obviously, it's not Greek fans in the stands, but this is the first time that we've played in front of fans for a long time. And you got to think that that's going through his head as he makes a massive mistake just to open up a game. It reminds you in a way of the Wolves game when Bobby Allen immediately ruins things and we concede a yeah. goal where the rest of the game, that's what everyone is thinking about. Just Buhalakis gets on the ball and I'm sitting there watching like, oh God, don't do it again. Yeah. And you just know when he's got it, he's got it. And against Marseille, you could just tell everyone it's behind him. He's feeling so much more confident with the ball at his feet and against Porto just didn't have that. Yeah, I know we want to move on to the other games from today, but just a few points. I really think the older players, too, at the end of the game, like, just slow down a bit. It's not backed up in analytics at all. And regarding Bukalakis, I know we were talking about he gets abuse from the fans, and it's not right, and sometimes, like, it's just gross, and his confidence is affected, and he's a confidence player. But I think it was Olympiakos EU, and he was maybe speaking in Greek, I think, or writing in Greek with another Greek. And some guy brought up the confidence issue. Oh, he doesn't have confidence or something, but, like, we need to back him. And, and, and Olympiakos EU said, this guy's 27 years old. He's the captain of our club in a European game. Give me a break. You captain Olympiakos 
you say, I screwed up, and you pick up your head and you play. You're the captain of our football team. You do not go mope and say, oh, now I'm low confidence, blah, blah, blah. Like, it doesn't matter how much abuse you get. You need to lift the whole team up. You need to lift your yourself up. And, you know, that's a good point. Like, I know we show respect to Bukhalaks because he does a lot of things right. Like, let's be honest. And he gets abused by fans a lot. But, like, he is the captain of our football team on a European night. I don't want to hear, like, oh, he was moping and sad. Like, pick yourself up, man. Pick yourself up. This is so important for our club. Like, you are the captain of our club. You need to pick everyone up. That's my final point. Like, I think, Olibiakosi, you nailed it on the head. And I was subconsciously thinking, but when I read it, I was like, that is exactly right. Like, you're the captain. Like, you're 27 years old. Boalakis is not a 22-year-old anymore. Like, we need to tell him, like, come on, man. Like, show us. You're right, Lambro. And I, I agree with what you said and what Consta said on Twitter. It's true that, especially as the captain of this club, you need to be able to be resilient through those mistakes. Um, I was just, of course, saying that I think that's what happened, was that he wasn't being resilient. Uh, and yeah, that's something that we need to see from him. He needs to be able to pick it up and we'll see how he responds in the future. I mean, obviously no one's going to blame Bukhalakis if we lose against Manchester City. So it's not exactly the best opportunity for him to go back into the European stage and prove himself. But yeah, I don't know. Um, overall, my final thoughts on the game are that I am sad about the result and I was moping around on Tuesday when the game was finished. But Lambro, I still think you're being a little bit doom and gloom and maybe it's just because Pauk didn't lose four nothing today maybe you're just not in the best of moods <laughs> but um no yeah that 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 has to be part of it but guys like I had a dream of this year of winning our first two games in Champions League and like really doing it you know like this was gonna be it and we we're gonna roll into Manchester with confidence blah 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 and it just like burst my bubble I want to be honest and like now I'm really seeing the faults in the team as well like I was kind of masking over it if that makes sense to you guys and like now I'm really starting to realize like okay we got some deep problems here and my bubble of us going deep into the Champions League and making the round of 16 just burst mightily so I am I'm still upset about that well uh Wrapping this up before we move on to Ike Lester. Man of the matchup, it's got to be unanimous. I can't imagine anyone would have a different opinion. It's got to be Valbuena. Um, that is, that's for me, Lambro. Actually, I was thinking maybe even Cisse, like just because of the situation he was in and like Fair. thrown in, like just respect to that guy. Like, Jesus, you haven't played any football all season and you're playing away against Porto, a fantastic team. A big, strong player like Marega, and you play great. Like, I'm going to give it to Cissé just for the context. If he had blocked that shot or had blocked the pass from Bukalakis' mess up, I probably would have given it to him. But uh, I'm still giving it to Valbuena. Yeah, I would have had Valbuena, honestly. He's very impressive, especially for his oh, age. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's... It's, it's hard to believe at some points. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. He's a very, very good player. I mean... He, he's definitely your guys' it factor. And, I mean, he's going to play a big part, I think, in that next game against uh, Porto and Marseille. Uh, but, I mean, Lambro, I wouldn't be too down. I mean, obviously, you know, like you were saying, Porto's going to get their 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 good players back, you know, Felipe Anderson as an example. But I think I think if Olympiacos has, uh, what is it, Mari Camara, yep. right, the midfielder, if, you, if they get him back and then Ba back, I mean, 
you never know. I mean, you're going to be at home. Anything can happen. You know, this is football. You never know. So, I mean, I would stay positive. Uh, I think Manchester City is going to beat Porto. Uh, I think it's just going to come down to Olympiacos being able to win against Porto and Marseille. That's going to be the real, you know, the real thing. But I think they can do it from an outsider's perspective, from a rival's perspective. <laughs> there you go, Lombro. Now you can feel a little better. Sleep easily tonight. Um, so, and a quick shout out to Fortunis as well. Jumps on, second half, impact sub, two key passes, two shot assists. Nobody could dispossess him with the ball. Six out of six offensive duels, two successful dribbles. He had that nice progressive run towards goal as well. Impact, unfortunately, he couldn't get a goal out of it. But, I mean, at some point, like, we have two creators on this team. You know what I mean? Madi to an extent as well. Uh, Valbuena, of course, the biggest one, and Fortunis. Like that, that those are the that's the creative spots we've got. We don't have anything else. But Adi, but Adi, he doesn't play the full ninety minutes. But he doesn't oh, run. Stop. He's lazy. Stop. He doesn't start for Olympiacos. Stop. <laughs> stop. Um, no, Fortunis. Yeah, if if he was on in the game for more, he would be a man of the match contender for me as well. He had some absolutely amazing parts of the game, and he was super integral in that that little portion when Olympiacos were dominating possession and looking really threatening. Anyways, I think we should probably head on to the other European games that took place today, actually. We have Ike losing 2-1 to Leicester, and we have Pauk drawing 0-0 with Granada. Um, honestly, I think both of those results, except for Adi, who predicted a 1-0 victory to Ike, both of those results were better than any of us expected. I think oh, all of us have Pauk losing. I think me at 3-1 Leicester was the kindest, potentially. Maybe Theo yep. said 2-0. But Ike started out really rough. They gave away a penalty that didn't look good, and then they gave away another goal not long after. Eventually got one back, but it was a quiet second half aside from that, and they lose 2-1. Um, Antonio, I don't know if you watched this game, but to get you into the into the fold here. What are your thoughts on Ike versus Leicester and Ike's potential to maybe I mean, get us some coefficient points at least? You know, Ike actually did a bit better than I thought they would. I When I saw that it was 2-0 early on, I was going to say, man, you know, I think this might be a 4-0 thrashing. I don't know. But they came out. They brought in uh, Tankovic in the second half. His finish was very nice with the left foot. Uh, Mandalos yeah. with a nice pass. Overall, you know, I was talking to my friend Greg Gavalas, who was on here I think a couple of weeks ago. And he was just telling me, like, this Ike side really struggles defensively. And I see what he's talking about, you know. Oh, Spotnas, yeah. as an example, they're just – I feel like they're very, you know, they're, they're not very cohesive back there. A lot of mistakes, you know, giveaways. Going forward, uh, Ike had a couple of chances. Levaya had a header. Uh, it was offsides, and he missed it anyway. Uh, and then he had another chance. One-on-one, -on -one, went wide left. Uh, I think going forward, Ike are fine. It's just the defensive uh, end is – a liability and it's Braga, Ike, Leicester and who's the fourth team in their group? It's Zoria Luhansk who have also lost their first two games to Braga and Leicester so right now that group is two teams on six points two teams on zero points yep. Ike play Zoria next week Okay I think they can get a win there uh, The I don't know about the second game against Leicester and Braga is going to be kind of tough again uh, Oh for sure But I mean overall I got to say I, I I got to give Ike a little more respect than I do to Pauk. Sorry if I upset any Pauk fans, but. 
I don't think you have to worry about that. If, if go Lombard ahead, already upset them, then you please, don't have to go ahead. Or Michael. Michael VCD was ripping it. <laughs> he was a great sub in for Lambro. He knew Lambro wasn't here. He's like, oh, I got to pick up the Pauk slander. It's but, crazy how many people hate Pauk. Like, I think everyone hates Pauk. Like, uh, even their fans. Like, I don't know. Like, they ruined the coefficient, man. You, you, you and Michael are not allowed on this podcast together. Like, we, can't, we, can't. <laughs> we have, we have the... talk in two weeks. I don't know how that's going to go, but I really want to make sure we, <laughs> we extend an olive branch there because we, we wish them nothing but the best. But yeah, I didn't watch any of these games. Unfortunately, I've had meetings literally all day, but the Ike lineup to me, a couple interesting things. Did they start Lopez as a winger? Um, that's an interesting move for me, especially leaving Tankovic on the bench. Obviously, when he comes on, he scores. And then it seemed like Chigrinsky was out. It's interesting that uh, when we had Greg on, we were talking about the ethnic key. We were a bit more positive about Svarnas than he was. I guess Ike fans get to see more of him than we do. And uh, yeah, it just seems like despite Ike's attempts to buy some defenders, they still need some improvements at the back there. And I think they have some really great attackers. They really do. They have a lot of big players in attack, but that defense is going to be the issue. The defense is so poor, and, like, maybe Svarnas looks good against Moldova for us, but, like, when he actually has to play European attackers, it's difficult. One point I'll make, like, Helder Lopez just hurts my eyes to watch him play football. He is oh, terrible. He's terrible. They let Nicholas Holt walk on a free who, you know, of course, because he played for Panathinaikos, I think. He's, he's not good at defending, but he's pretty good going forward. Like, I think... He, I always thought, like, Holt, okay, decent player. As well as your former fullback, Johansson, I thought it was always pretty decent. And Sua, as well, was a decent player. But Helder Lopez, whew, he's been there a long time, and he's bad. He's really bad, just both offensively and defensively. I, I was shocked to see him play maybe more as a defensive winger, but just not very good. One thing I want to remind people about Svarnas versus Moldova Moldova are a massive team. They're a really good defensive team, and we were very lucky to get a result out of them as the ethnic key, as Jan van Schip says. Like, it was a very tough game. So we should we should give Svanath some credit for playing well against those absolutely enormous sides like Moldova. I will come to his defense because we have brought up, and I brought it up to Greg as well. You know, obviously, Ike has seen the worst of him. But for this season in European play, he boasts the best defensive metrics than anybody on the team. Now, that might not say much because watching this game today, Ike doesn't have a Champions League or Europa League quality defense. They do not have a European caliber defense at all. It scared me. Every time Leicester got forward, they looked dangerous. I mean, you just saw people like slipping. I can't tell whether really it's the organization. And Ike were playing definitely with a back four today. It seemed like they were running 4-2-3-1. And I don't know, I kind of prefer when they play a 3-5-2. You know, if, I, if I'm putting myself in an Ike's hat, I would rather see the 3-5-2. One, and I also hate seeing Leviah out on the wing. He just doesn't do well out there. He's like stranded. And there's a reason they subbed him out at halftime. I, ugh, I, I watched the game. I don't have a lot to say about it. I will say this, though. The first, like, 15 minutes, I thought Ike did pretty well. They were holding their own. They had Lester pinned for a while. But there's just some some things I struggle with in terms of the player personnel choices. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I think Greg was talking about it as well, that uh, Carrera really likes to play with the formations. I mean, he'll go 4-2-3-1-1, yeah. 3-5-2. And I mean, overall, I just it's a head-scratcher having Levi out on the wing as well. I feel like he's the most effective playing centrally. Mm -hmm. And 
I mean, this Ike side, I mean, right after Tankovic scored, I don't know if you guys saw, he had a chance, again, almost similarly, to, to tie up the game. Yep. Going forward, I mean, they had it going, but it, there were so many defensive lapses, I just couldn't believe it. That, that's the biggest fault of this Ike team. And, uh, I mean, I thought I thought there were some good plays that came out of Madalos as well. I mean, uh, uh, this is a team, again, w without Levi Garcia, who looks so bright, and they need him to come back. You know, there's unfortunately not too much creativity. It's It's got to come from Madalos or Oliveira or Levaya when he's maybe played in position. Uh, the, you know, they need more creative pieces. I also... I'm not sure how I feel about Shackoff, to be honest with you. Some, I think Samoa is clearly the better option. I, a couple of games I've seen now of Shackoff, I'm not impressed. Yeah, Shackoff is I, I was nothing special at Pauk, I remember, but the other midfielder is at Kristich. 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 Yeah, him and Samoa's are great. Like I think when you look like middle up for Ike, you're like, okay, wow, this is a pretty impressive team. Like this is decent you know and then you you look at the defense and it's really bad like really, really <laughs> bad and it's just like kind of kind of shocking like i know even masartic was pretty pro on the goalkeeper Chichon does, like, yeah yeah like but i don't really see it that much from him as well i don't think he's that great i don't think he's that confident coming out from goal i i really think they're struggling there and you guys brought yeah. it up really well like there's only so much and i think them holding their own against leicester just shows the midfield and attacking options are quite good but defensively after a while you just get picked apart yeah unfortunately there's not much more for us to dwell on here i mean it was we expected a loss we got a loss they did put up a better fight especially in the second half a man of the match for me I think I'm going to give this one to Madalos, man of the match, really the sole source of creativity. How about you guys? Yeah, I agree with you. I definitely go with Madalos. I mean, he created a couple of chances for uh, Tankovic. He yeah. seemed like the most creative outlet along with uh, Levaya here and there. Yep. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. Yeah. JVS, take notes. Another number 10 you should be using. The only thing worse than Levaya on the wing, Montalos on the wing. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. One, one note about Montalos, though. Like, why is this man taking free kicks? Like, he has the worst delivery. <laughs> He's so bad. Like, I was listening to the BT Sport English announcers, and they're like, after, like, the fourth or fifth, like, terrible delivery, they were like, just another shocking delivery from Montalos. Has he done anything well from those? Like, and I was like, thank God. Like, I'm the only person who sees this like even the english were like that and they were they were saying his like name like mandalos or something like it was really oh, the bad. english like, pronunciations are just a laugh yeah and he yeah. was saying like i was listening to pronunciations like before the game and it was like yeah no I've never i've never heard like just shocking stuff like Mandal was easy but yeah no his delivery's poor really bad yeah but i think yeah man of the match with him would make sense Ready to yeah. move on to the Pauk game, I guess, everyone? Yeah, we'll go into that one. They surprised, uh, you know, and the game was still going on when we first started recording. I had it up just kind of trying to see if anything crazy happened that I would interrupt you guys for. But I am impressed. I mean, now I will say this. Grenada didn't look quite as crisp as they have in their previous outings, at least that we've seen in Europa League. Pauk caught them on a little bit of a down day. But credit to Pauk, man, they... They held them off. They played pretty well. They played pretty compact. Um, they went back with that 3-4-3. Uh, with, actually, with Soli starting on the bench. 
Um, yeah, Nuris was given a lot of space to just go up and back, kind of play more offensive role. He did very well with that. Schwab and Augusto, I think, were the midfield pairing that started with Zivkovic and Merg, of course, kind of playing more centrally together, kind of like that dual attacking mid type thing that can go out on the wings that we've seen Martins do as well with Fortunis and Valbuena. So credit to them. They, they did well. Yeah, it's a big result for Pauk. I'm very happy to see them get a draw. You know, it's, it's good. Right now, the way the group is set up, Grenada are in first with four points. PSV are second with three points after a late winner today. Pauk are on two points and Ammonia are on one. So definitely looks a bit more promising than the Ike group. Obviously, Pauk have PSV, one of the tougher opponents coming up. But, I mean, if Pauk can draw with PSV, regardless of what Granada do, they're one point out of that top two halfway through the group, and that's not bad at all. So it would be interesting. This might be a group that Pauk can make it out of if they keep this up. Obviously, like you said, Adi, Grenada, not the best performance from them, but who knows? Maybe we could see some uh, a run in Europa League for Pauk this year. I, I think also it, it's notable to to say that this was Ferreira's last game in charge as well. So mm -hmm. Pablo Garcia is most likely going to take over, I think. So, you know, the door's open in the Europa League for them, I guess, but we'll we'll see. We're going to be seeing a lot more Jolis and uh, I think uh, Mikhailidis as well after the Ferreira disaster. A lot of, I know a lot yeah. of fans don't like him. <laughs> I, I, I just want to say, Abel Ferreira, thanks for the memories. You will be missed. We loved you here at Olympiacos. You were a <laughs> so fantastic go. coach, played beautiful football, and it was just an honor every time we went up against you. Palmeras will love you. Their fans will love the beautiful football you bring. This is Gate 7 International's goodbye to you. You were fantastic. You improved Greek football massively. With that out of the way, <laughs> I I think I want to say Zolis deserved to be dropped. Like, I can't remember him doing anything for like two months now, like a month at least. Like, he just performs like really poorly and it makes sense. The kid's like 18 years old, right? But I think yeah. it was time for him to see the bench, to be honest with you. Like, yeah, especially in European games, I think the, the kid Merg. He's he's a good player. Like oh yeah, he's better than Palkas. I'm sorry, that that's what I get so far out of this, which is actually interesting. Palkas, who we made fun of a little bit, is like a fan favorite at Fenerbahce right now, and like love there. Like I don't know if you guys seen this, but he's like scoring goals, producing assists. But well done to Palk. Like it was a really gritty game for some reason. It just turned into challenges flying in and like players pushing each other god super intense for a europa league game yeah. you know and that was interesting to see and like the pack players were up for it which was great to see it was definitely nice to see i agree with you too about merg uh i never really rated pelkas he was too inconsistent for me maybe i don't know i know a lot of Bach fans rated him maybe from performances from the past but Last season, and then especially this season, and in the games over the summer and the qualifications leading up, literally, I haven't seen a great game from Belkas at Balk since the cup final. The I think it was the first leg of the cup final against us, um, post COVID. Yeah, I mean, the 3 2 game. Yeah, he played really I mean, well. You played really well then, and then after that, it was like nothing. So, I'm not, uh, I never had a high opinion of him, I never thought he was really that good. And I think Merg is way better. I also like Zivkovic a lot. I think he's very dynamic, 
Very lucky to have him. I hope Solis gets out of this form dip because he has that potential. So I do hope for the best uh, from him. Sometimes you just have to do that with young players. Uh, with Solis in mind, you have to show him that you're not going to always be able to get into the team. And sometimes getting that position on the bench for a little bit is what it takes to sort of get the player back in the mindset of fighting their way into the team and potentially getting that form back. I am very interested, though, to see what happens to Pauk with their manager leaving. Obviously, they're promoting someone from within their club, which is, I suppose, a bit encouraging. But a lot of times, obviously, when a manager leaves, immediate switch of form, whether it's good or bad. So there could be sort of a hangover or things could come out really well. And I do expect to see more Greeks back in the team, honestly, with the new manager coming in. Obviously, only one Greek in the starting 11 for Pauk Yanoudis. So that should be interesting as well. Yeah, I think we're going to be seeing a return of a lot of the young Greeks as well. I mean, Pablo Garcia has been the coach of the under-21 Pauk team, I think, for three years. And if I understand, I think they were undefeated for... I don't know if it was last season or if it's been for a couple seasons now, something like that. Yeah. It's a crazy stat. Yeah, they were they were amazing. Yeah, his his under twenty one side at Pog. I mean, obviously, you know, coaching them inside Poyatos as an example <laughs> doesn't always translate. Yeah. Uh, but um, I I think we're gonna see a return to the Greeks, and I mean, I don't know for Pog fans, maybe for you guys, things will go positive now. But <laughs> I don't know, guys. <laughs> We'll, we'll see. I will say this, too. Um, that whole right defensive side situation they were dealing with, running that 3-4-3 and just kind of taking out, like, Musawage and, well, they don't have Matos anymore, but just eliminating that issue by playing the 3-4-3 and just kind of having, like, a winger running up and back. Alves, I thought, did pretty well there. They didn't seem quite as susceptible as they did against Omonia. So I, I thought that uh, it was handled pretty well today. I also thought it was interesting not seeing El Cadori start because I thought he's been doing well as a workhorse in that midfield. Yeah, so he's tactically, had problems, I think, actually. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then that would, uh, that would explain it. But that was interesting to me. Um, I thought maybe Cholak would get his first goal today. But I guess that was proven wrong. Is this guy ever going to score? <laughs> Three and a half million euro striker. Is he ever going to score? The Serbian Hassan, he's being called some say. <laughs> Is he Serbian? Is he Croatian? Oh, I have no idea. The what Croatian Hassan, Croatian. some are being called. <laughs> no, you know, you wish Pauk the best in Europa League. I, I assume they got this amazing result after giving it all for their favorite manager, Abel Ferreira, who, as we said, just brought amazing football to the north of Greece and he will be missed in the community and especially us here at Gate 7 International. We just, God, he played beautiful football in those formations he played and he unlocked it. He unlocked Pauk and we'll, we'll see where I can't even keep a straight face. That's enough, uh, just, John, bro. That's enough. <laughs> and just for the listeners, uh, this wasn't intended to be a, a Lombro tirade. There, you know, the game's just finished today. The data won't populate for match reports until tomorrow. So there's no analytics for us to share with you that could change our opinions. You just have to deal with Lombro being Lombro. You will <laughs> yeah. be missed, Abel. I'm just saying, like, great result today for Pauk, but like. <laughs> They were playing for it all today with <laughs> Ferreira leaving. Honestly, wish him the best. So strange. Like, he's not Brazilian, too. He's Portuguese. So him going to Brazil is a bit strange as a young manager now. Like, 
I mean, they they speak Portuguese. No, no, no. Of course, but like, I mean, like, I I I would assume like he was linked with Sporting and Benfica, of course, like before this in the summer. So, which was strange. Like, why would they take Abel Ferreira? But like, anyway, like going to Portugal, I don't know how good of a team Palmeiras is. I'm not fluent in like Brazilian football, but still, it's kind of shocking. No, was this like a real link? Or was this like a Greek transfer link? It's Greek which transfer them, link, yeah, which are goes, always true. So it doesn't like, count. Most of them are are full of crap. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't do that. Peter, I, I Peter, we got to wrap this up. Rambo, Rambo needs to go to bed. This is just <laughs> the the pop. This is tire. also true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should probably wrap up then. Rambo, thank you for the farewell message. Uh, hopefully, Ferreira sees it. I'm sure he will appreciate. Uh, Antonio, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it was really interesting hearing about Panathinaikos and getting your take on the current situation there. Obviously, um, because of UEFA bans and things like that, we've been talking a lot more about Eichen Pauk uh, in Europe, but it's really great to hear about Panathinaikos and, you know, get a fresh take on the rivalry and things like that. And we really appreciate your insight on that. So while we have you, is there anything that you would like to promote or anywhere that we can follow you? Obviously, Hellas Football we have had many of their writers on and they've got the podcast going, but is there anything else you'd like to let the audience know about? Oh, yeah, just to, you know, like you were saying, check out the, the LS Footy uh, podcast on, we've, we've got it on Spotify and Anchor. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at LS Footy. And if you'd like, if any Panathinaikos fans or just Greek football fans in general want to follow me, my at is Pyrrhus7019, P-Y-R-R-H-U-S-7019 on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, thank you guys for having me on. I really had a, a good time talking to you guys. No, thank you. Yeah, it's always fun having you guys. Oh, and I guess while while you're here, uh, you know, we have Stelios Giannakopoulos coming on Sunday. Do you have a question uh, that you might want to ask him? Yeah, actually, you know, I've always wanted to know what was the rivalry like? Like, what, what is it like to play in, in a rival game like that against Panathinaikos in, in his case, Panathinaikos Olympiakos? Like, is it anxiety-inducing? What's <laughs> like a Champions League game as an example? Like, what, what are the nerves? No, that's actually a real. That's a really good question. I will, definitely will ask him that. The difference between you know playing in like a European game versus a rivalry. What's what? What gives you more pressure? <laughs> Is it the European game or the rivalry? That's a really good question. No, I like. To be fair, that man didn't seem to feel pressure very much. <laughs> for sure. Well, thank you all so much for listening, especially if you've made it this far. Continue to interact with us. Hashtag Asterios, folks. We're recording the podcast on Sunday. So get your questions in. Follow us on Twitter at Gate7INTL, on Instagram at Gate7INTL. Check us out on Facebook, Gate7 International Podcast. We can be listened to on Spotify, Apple Music, all that good stuff. And yeah, we're super excited for the next podcast. It's going to be a massive one. Get your questions in. This man is a legend. We're hoping for a great time. And, uh, we will see you soon.